You know, in the late 90s, when what you would call crate diggers were digging for like the deepest sample sounds and, you know, the variants of the what we consider deep jazz records like Strata East or Muse Records or, you know, Cobblestone or any of those labels that put out really cool, deep, we would now call them spiritual jazz records. Mm -hmm. All roads ultimately led you to Tribe Records. It was just the ultimate. You know, you just had to know what Tribe Records was. So by the time you figured one record, you know, you realized by talking with friends there was another one. And by the time you realized the extent of the label's trajectory, you know, you really wanted every single record. That was Ethan Egan Alapad, the founder of Now Again Records, VMP's partner on VMP Anthology, The Story of Tribe Records, the box set that this season of VMP Anthology, the podcast, is devoted to. As you probably know by now, Tribe Records was founded in Detroit in the early 1970s by Phil Ranelin and Wendell Harrison, and their advisor and friend Harold McKinney. The label released fewer than 10 LPs and closed as its founders moved on to different musical projects. When crate diggers were rediscovering Tribe and saving the label from the annals of history, there was little context for the records beyond what sat on those sides of vinyl. Well, you know, you got to remember that back in the 90s, you know, there was no context for this music other than it being what people called, and it sounds silly to say this, right? But like soul jazz or jazz funk or rare groove, okay? Mm -hmm. That was the way that this music was referred to. So you'd be just as likely to get a Sun Ra or a Tribe record in a rare groove section in a store or a jazz funk record section at a store as you would to get like, um, I don't know, like Gil Scott Heron or, you know, John, Johnny Hammond Smith, something mm-hmm. like that. So when you started listening to Tribe records and the records by people like Bubba Thomas on Lighten, which was his imprint, or like the deeper Strata East titles like Shemek Farah and the Heath Brothers and the Descendants of Mike and Phoebe. When you started listening to those records and putting together the context of what that music was, you realized that there was a group of people off doing their own thing that was very different than what we at that point were just considering like groovy music to listen to play out while we DJed or maybe sample. Mm-hmm. Mission and the tribe mission, just like the mission of Bubba Thomas on Lighten, and then later people like you know that we discovered because it was so deep back then. But like Roy Brooks, who's also from Detroit, and his Imhotep label, um, you know Lloyd McNeil. Like a lot of the music was accompanied by mission statements printed on the records, so you could mm-hmm. like read and understand what these cats were trying to put forward and say oh, this was like a revolutionary sound and a revolutionary ideal. Like these cats were really trying to change not only their community, but the communities of black Americans all around the globe for the better. You know, maybe they could only impact Detroit or Houston or in the case of Black Fire, Washington, D.C., but collectively they could impact all of these different places. Then you started seeing how it all connected with venues like the East and M. Tume's record that came out on 
uh, Strata East and how that connected with Bubba Thomas in Houston. You know, it's, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. And you start saying, oh, wow. But that's the same label that put out that James Spaulding 45. And isn't James Spaulding from Indiana and like the Uncle Funkenstein album and blah, blah, blah. You just went lateral and, you know, you move deeper and deeper as you met people that knew more and more. But the tribe stuff always stood out because, you know, it had an incredible aesthetic. Its creators had a mission. They articulated that mission very clearly mm-hmm. in like beautiful prose. It turns out they had a magazine. Their music sounded great. It was well recorded. You know, it was done with intent and purpose. It was very obvious that that stuff stood, you know, at the highest level of what we now call spiritual jazz. But thanks to crate diggers and lovers of soul jazz like Egon, the label has since had a second life, been sampled for breaks, and is here in this seven LP box set, collecting six of the label's original LPs and the first ever release of an unreleased LP from the label that was promoted with a single but never put out until now. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast is devoted to telling the story of Tribe Records, from their time as an idea two jazz musicians cooked up as a way to ensure their future as artists, to today, when the label is part of a continuum of Black-centric jazz labels that invented the DIY ethos before we even knew to call it that. This season, we'll hear more from Egon, whose love of Tribe Records extended to introducing Phil Ranelin to Mad Lib, leading to the two of them to work together. And thanks to interviews done by my co-host, Marcus J. Moore, we'll hear from Phil Ranelin and Wendell Harrison, who tell the story of Tribe Records in their own words. We'll also hear from Doug Hammond, the leader of one of the albums in your box, and the only album in the Tribe discography to come from outside of the core group. In this prologue episode, A Message from the Tribe, we first hear from Marcus Moore and Wendell Harrison, who talk about the jazz scene in Detroit. And then we hear from Phil Ranelin, who backs up Wendell's depictions of what Detroit's jazz scene was like in the 60s and 70s. And just as a note, throughout this season, the creaking you'll hear with the Wendell Harrison interviews is his desk chair. At that, at that particular time, all the professional musicians, national musicians would stand in town and working around the area. And then they would go to New York to record and come back because the economy here was, was happening. It was really uh, uh, hot in the 40s and 50s because of the auto industry. People was coming up from the South and whatnot, uh, getting jobs and uh, buying homes. And, and uh, uh, the union was big at that particular time. Everybody just like, we was developing a middle class uh, in, in Detroit, you know, people working working these jobs and whatnot. So, so uh, uh, it was very lucrative, you know, and, and, and we created a, a, a prolific scene, uh, scene in terms of jazz education and, and uh, 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 influencing the audience. Because Charlie Parker would come in and perform, but he would stay for six months. Miles Davis would work a local club. Uh, like Bluebird, Bluebird Lounge would come in and play and, and uh, uh, these are black clubs, you know, and um, uh, John Coltrane would come and, 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 and stay with uh, friends and whatnot and, and uh, shed and practice and whatnot and then uh, go off and do a tour from here or go to Europe or whatever 
you know, but it was real, real, very hot. Detroit was very hot in the 40s and 50s. Uh, even before, even before the 50s, we had ballroom uh, places where uh, Duke Ellington, Count Basie, um, uh, Billy Eckstein and his band, um, uh, Dewey Redmond, you know, all those guys with, with Don Redmond, I mean, they would all come in and, and uh, uh, play. And, and people, at that particular time, it was dance music, big band dance music, you know. And then, and then uh, the 50s is more um, um, quintets, quartets, and, and uh, uh, ensemble, smaller ensembles, kind of like downsides from the, from the big band. A bird, uh, Charlie Parker uh, introduced that, uh, and it became really uh, popular. Uh, um, that was like uh, music being concertized because before, before uh, in the 40s and 30s and 40s, jazz was like uh, dance music. But when uh, Charlie Parker uh, 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 created his spin on it, on the scene, he uh, people began to listen. It was concertized. You know, you can sit out. People wanted to sit, they didn't want to dance. They could dance, but they, they wanted to sit out and listen to uh, this bebop. This is like a new phenomenon. What, uh, you know, uh, what what was the the vibe of the Detroit jazz scene at the time, you know, when you all were making this music? Um, it was very vibrant, you know, all those aspects, you know, of of the word jazz, you know, like uh, she had the hardcore jazz, you know, and then you had the not not necessarily at the time called smooth jazz, but not as you know, it's more uh, commercially uh, acceptable kind of jazz, and uh, yeah, and then you had the avant-garde, you had the so we we had big bands, we kind of bridged all of those gaps. In my opinion, you know, we had little elements of, you even said it earlier, I mean, we had elements of a lot of different types of, me of black music, you know, which that's really, I guess in terms of tribe, is a defining factor, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and that's the thing. I feel like a lot of people, when they uh, when they hear tribe music, you know, obviously, you know, to to certain people, it identifies as jazz, but then you have so many different elements that are at play, and I feel like that's what makes it come back years later. Like, that's the reason why we're talking now, right? This is music right. you created in the Absolutely. 70s, and, and now yeah. all of a sudden you got, you know, young cats like me who are like, yo, man, this is where it's at, you know, because <laughs> it comes around in cycles, you know, so I think that's a, that's yeah. a blessing, man. Oh, uh, sure, it's a blessing, man. And, you know, like what you said, man, is very true. I I can almost count the interviews I had, uh, you know, back then on one hand. You know, it wasn't, wasn't nobody interested too much. I mean, you know, like media and that sort of thing. I'm getting more interviews and, you know, like people calling me about things now that, you know, it never happened even back then.
Next, we hear more from Wendell and Marcus, specifically about how working with Sun Ra opened Wendell up to the possibilities of doing everything himself, and for pushing the boundaries of what his music became. Then, Wendell fills out the tribe origin story. We hear how a move back to Detroit to kick drugs spurred the creation of the label, how owning their masters was important for them as artists, which meant creating their own label, and how Motown leaving Detroit meant there were fewer opportunities for musicians in the studio, and that pushed them even harder into making Tribe a reality, working with a tight-knit group of musicians. He also talks about how a program guide for the collective's concerts became a magazine, and why he thinks Tribe ultimately didn't break through much outside of Detroit in the early 70s. Well, Sun Ra. <sighs> now, I'm a be- I was a bebop musician, and still, that was my bass, you know. Uh, and staying in this loft, we got a lot of calls uh, because uh, a lot of uh, Detroit musicians were staying in the loft in New York. So, and then, then people would come down there and practice with us, like Sonny Rollins. You know, Monk would come down, and, and, and we had a heck of a, 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 a relationship with uh, uh, older musicians, the master musicians. They would come, they see, see well, they go down there and play with the kids. You know, they would come, the youngsters, you know what I mean? And so they would come down there and rehearse, and then they'd go on the road somewhere, you know, doing the tour. So, uh, once again, I got a call from the uh, being down there at the law. It's kind of like a referral service in a way uh, of employment because people would call down there to uh, where we were and they would really uh, know they want to know what's happening because we have a, we would have rent parties down there and parties down there as well. They had people, people come in and, and hear us play, and, and then we would we record, and, and, and uh, 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 you know, it's, the kids going to party, you know, we're going to smoke some weed, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. You know how kids are. So anyway, uh, Sunrise wanted a, uh, a saxophone player because John Gilmore had went with... Uh, Art Blakey at that time, and uh, he was using Farrell Saunders, but he was occupied with uh, John Coltrane. Uh, this was like 1961, and Train was getting his thing together, and, and Farrell wanted to be a part of. Actually, Farrell wanted to be a bebop musician, but Train got in and took him on another, took took him to another planet, musically speaking, you know. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, I, it was me. So I got a, got a chance to play with uh, Sunrun. And uh, what was really interesting about Sunrun, he didn't really have to conform to, to, to no uh, record company. You know, he did his own thing because he had two record labels of his own. One was a Saturn record label, and uh, I'm not familiar with the other. Then he had his own publishing. He has his own managing company, you know, dance troupe, you know, uh, people, every time he'd go, people would film everywhere he went and record everywhere he went. His music was very, it was, was documenting his music all the time and putting out the music himself, 
So, so at the time, I didn't know how much influence. I, I was really influenced by what was happening. Because when I came years later, 10 years later or so, I, when I came back to Detroit, uh, the guys wanted to uh, 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 establish a record label and try to, uh, uh, you know, put out music out there, you know, guys around the area here. And I had this uh, impression, this, this history being with Sun Ra, and I saw how he was doing it. So I began to implement uh, uh, different ideas on how to go about uh, uh, producing and recording uh, uh, original music. And I, I told them, don't worry about it, play. These are good music, this is the, the cream of the crop of musicians in the Detroit area. I say, don't worry about trying to emulate uh, somebody else's sound. Play what's in your heart and your play your spirit, you know. And because uh, uh, I, I saw the way Sunrise was dealing, he played. He wasn't conforming to any 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 uh, commercial sound. You know, a lot of the, a lot of guys using commercial sound as templates to what they want to do. You know, but Sunrise was he was out there on his own. You know, he's always he's getting his information from the cosmos. So uh, I worked with Hancock for about four years. And I worked with 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 R and B guys, Chuck Jackson, Lord Price, uh, these old name, commercial names back in the day, you know. And uh, Sonny would come and rehearse with me, practice with me. I met Train. Uh, I got a chance to meet him. I got a chance to meet and uh, hang with his ex-wife. In fact, she became uh, my fiance uh, when, when Train met uh, Alice. Coach, uh, her name was Alice McLeod. He met her, fell in love with her, and and uh, started a second family with her. Meanwhile, uh, Naima. Uh, fell in love with me. I'm young. See, all kinds of stuff happening when you're young. You know, what I mean? you know if you're young and, and agile and, 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 and got a uh, good charisma about you, good spirit about you, you know, all kinds of stuff that happen. happen. So uh, we hung for about uh, three or four years. And uh, she was supporting my career. And then I came uh, to Detroit. Things slowed down in New York. I came to Detroit and visited. And I uh, started teaching here. A guy's uh, hired me. I got, actually, I was captured by my mother. She kidnapped me. <laughs> she, she said, you got to stay in Detroit because she was in she was in real estate and she wanted people, she wanted me to help her with the business and whatnot, you know, real estate. So she's trying to set up things for me to, to be here in Detroit. So I came here for a visit before I knew it. I was here 10 years, you know. I was telling people, well, 
I'm gonna, I don't know how long I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna be. I'm trying to get out of here. Next month I'll probably leave. And I kept on saying that and looked around. It's ten years, you know. So I said, I looked, and I was forty then. So I said, oh man, because at that time I had built a, a record company, being here, a magazine, publishing, tribe. I had created a tribe here, you know. And, and uh, 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 I started teaching. Uh, uh, jazz, uh, jazz studies, you know. So uh, I looked around. I had a, I got property, married, and uh, I got too much semen on my feet to go anywhere. You know, rooted, rooted in Detroit. <laughs> you know? And so, and that's uh, interesting. Um, so, when did you start tribe? You started when you came back to Detroit. Yeah. That's wow. how that's how that happened. That's how that happened, you know. Okay. I came in accidentally. I'm make a just come through here to see what's going on, you know. And uh I was on the road and whatnot. Before I got here, I had a, uh I had been traveling with all kinds of people and they, um, uh playing all kinds of like Esther Phillips and uh, so I had a drug, I had uh, uh, a drug, a drug habit, a heroin drug habit. So I came here to 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 uh, uh, kind of like clean up, and I went to California. Uh, this is 1967, 68, 68. I went out there to to, to uh, rejuvenate myself. So I started recording for Columbia Records. I did the thing with. Uh, uh, Art Pepper and, and Esther Phillips, and I started playing with a lot of people out there. And uh, as I was cleaning my, uh, getting free from the, the drugs, then I came back here in, in 70, on my, on my way to New York, back to New York. And uh, uh, my mother and all the artist community, musician community, that kept me here because they gave me a lot of work, you know. And meanwhile, they uh, wanted to do musicians around here, like Mark, Marcus Belgrade, Phil Ranlin, uh, Harold McKinney. Uh, these are master musicians that, that had been working for Motown. And the Motown was always promising them to, to record uh, their music, but never did. They recorded. They recorded the music, but never did put it out, you know. So uh, I said, well, we could do this. This is really no big thing. I had the, I knew how Sunrise did it. I said, we can start a label. And uh, uh, even before that, we started producing uh, our music, writing the music, producing it at uh, the Art Institute, presented at the Art Institute in the uh, University of Detroit, dealing with it. And uh, at that point, uh, we had a program book that, 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 uh, that we sold ads, and that, that, that financed the artists, the artists and the renting the hall and all the, uh, uh, operational and production expenses. Uh, and we we, we uh, uh, garnered this money 
like selling ads, donations, and, and, and whatnot, almost like a nonprofit. We hadn't had a nonprofit yet, you know. I, I, I developed that 10 years uh, later. But uh, uh, so we had this program, but full of ads. And a guy by the name of Herb Boyd said, well, dang, you got all these different ads. Why don't you turn it into a magazine? And because uh, he, he was teaching black studies at Wayne State University. And he said, well, I got a lot of students that, that would uh, be able to write for the magazine. He would give them credit for writing these different articles and whatnot. So he turned them, that program guide into a magazine and gave it away. And then somebody said, wow, this art really looked good. So at that particular time, I, yeah, I had gotten married too, as we, as we, uh, and she, my first wife was a, a graphic artist and uh, photographer, you know, and she helped put the um, uh, program book as well as magazine together. And we had a cadre of about 30, 40 people, writers, photographers, uh, graphic artists, and because people are back, they wanted to do something. We just wanted to do something. Nixon was in office. Remember Richard Nixon? Nixon? Oh, yeah. He was in office and he put the hammer on everybody. You know, uh, we had to do for ourselves, you know, because uh, uh, the economy was uptight in the, in the, in the, in the black community. So, but it was good because we was working for us, we were creating uh, opportunities for ourselves and we were supporting one another, you know, and everybody gravitated toward that. See, this is a tribe was the only game in town. Mm -hmm. We was hiring writers, we was giving them, we could give them, could give them, give them a little, little bit of money to write articles and paying for photographers and, and they were getting uh, more corporate ads in the magazine, like General Motors car ads, General Motors prices. And then we had trade-off with the TV stations because they would promote the magazine on the TV and we would promote, uh, we'd give them a play in the magazine. And then they finance records. So we'd go into the studio and, and uh, record our, our, our original music and whatnot. And uh, we had several uh, 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 releases that, were, that came out. The most, thing, most important thing about this is everybody owned their own product. And Tribe was, we created a, a, a conduit where a tribe was a conduit. Everybody had that, it was actually individual artists producing their own music. They had their own publishing. And whatnot, and but it was sold as a catalog because at that particular time you couldn't get distribution and you couldn't get airplay unless uh, you had a facade of a company. You had to be represented by a company, you know. So it looked like we had a company as as a way of, way we packaged it up. You know, we had the uh, 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 image of a of a label. And, and but 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 ironically, everybody owned. It wasn't a label. Everybody owned 
And it was really a, 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 a conduit for fiduciary because everybody owned their own and, and financed their own product. And we just used the, the label as the, for uh, getting airplay and uh, distribution. And everybody was selling, everybody that was on the label, not, they, all, they, they, they promoted their own product, but they promoted everybody else's too. You know, uh, it was like a family, family situation, real tribe. You know, we, we was doing this out of necessity, you know, because this is the only thing, wasn't no record companies really here that were interested in, in, in uh, putting out our music, you know. And but it's, it's an ironic situation because we, we were, if you look at it on the back of all these major artists, you'll see our names as backup musicians, you know. So we were skilled and qualified. So the point was, when we make it hit for the other folks, we can do this for ourselves. You know. Uh, so anyway. Man, and that and that came out at a time when uh, you know, I feel like the music was more, like you said, it was esoteric, but for whatever reason, people didn't want to put it out. I wonder why that is. Did you ever, did you all ever think about that? Oh, it wasn't a big money involved. Mm -hmm. You know, in the, in, 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 see, when you say big company, you're talking about like Atlantic. Yeah, like Atlantic, like the big labels, yeah. Well, they didn't, want, they didn't want to deal with us because we didn't, we didn't fit that template, you know, we didn't fit that, that, that style, you know. And we were saying, why should they tell us what to play? We're the musicians, you know. Now we're going to create some, we're going to create music as we see it, as skilled uh, musicians and skilled artists as we see it, you know. And, and if no one puts it out, we put it out ourselves. We might not get as much money, but at least we got the integrity and the virtue of actually uh, uh, putting out our own uh, 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 music, and, and, and it's really representative of what of what we're about, you know. As artists, but with the company going to try a producer? Every company has a producer, and they, an A and R guy. They're going to tell you what to do, uh, what they want to hear for their for their particular market. But in this case, we were our own producers. Everybody produced themselves. This co happens. We, we was all together. We producing stuff that was similar because we was on each other's albums. Not only were we selling each other, but we had we on every album. It was the same musicians. For instance, uh, I would use Marcus Belgrave on my album, and when he records, he would use me on his album. Uh, same with Harold McKinney when he comes, I use him on my stuff. Everybody's using one another. It was a, uh, uh, we wouldn't go, we wouldn't go outside the family. Uh, if we did, it was a special. Occasionally, we would, would like would introduce uh, other folks in the community. But it was a hub of about ten of us, and we would uh, use. Uh, 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 other, other, other musicians for if we had the need, you know. But uh, Marcus was using, he brought in some people, he wanted to use synthesizers. So he got some folks that was 
that they, they could give him that style. And uh, people were trying to spin it with harps and stuff. And, and, and different. But anyway, the, but the, the point is, we was promoting ourselves. And that's how we uh, got a name, an international name. Here, we have some final thoughts from Wendell and Marcus, as Wendell discusses what it was like to hustle Tribe Records live and the label's lasting legacy. Uh, myself and, and uh, a couple of other folks, we, we garnered a lot of distribution in the States. We had about 50, 15 different distributors, independent distributors, like I was saying before. And some people was in, uh, we had people in Chicago. I can't even remember who they were. Um, we had people uh, in St. Louis. We had Black Fire in, in um, D.C. Mm -hmm. We had Rick Ballard in, in L.A. or oh, he's in San Francisco. And it was distributing all over. It was distributing uh, all over. But but to come to find out, Rick Ballard was distributing a lot of stuff in China and Japan. We didn't know it. And and Black Fire, Jim Gray in D.C. was distributing a lot of stuff in in, in Europe on the Atlantic coast. And uh, it's like man. Everybody's buying records every 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 month. They order records every month, but we didn't know where they was going. Come to find out, they was going over there, you know. And ironically, ten years later, we started getting calls from Japan and Europe. They wanted to license the stuff because we had uh, built the market. We didn't know anything about it. We just sent it. I'm just sending records out. Oh, you want a record? How many you want? Bah, 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 bah. Just learn how to deal with invoices and all that kind of stuff. And, and learn, learn how to uh, credit folks and deal with returns and all that kind of stuff, you know. And then the rest of the, uh, the other musicians, they selling on every time they go on the bandstand, they got a bunch of records, they selling on the bandstand, like Marcus and Harold McKinney, Doug Hammond, everybody that was on the label was selling the catalog everywhere they went, supporting one another. That was, that's what it was all about. This is like a tri tribal concept. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say that's you know that's the name tribe, com creative community. It seemed like that's what you all were doing. Out of, but out of survival though, we had to do this to survive. Uh -huh. Nixon was in office. <laughs> we had to do this to survive. We had to come together. I mean, when, when we have pressure on us. We come together, you know, they say, well, ain't nothing, ain't nothing happening. We got to work with others. You got to work with others, whether we like it or not. We all we got, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so so, so we was forced that we was going to make a living and make a name for ourselves. We had to come together to do something, you know. And that's the way it is with the, the Italians, the Irish, and uh, all the communities all over. They come together now because they love one another so much. It's our survival. They want to live. 
They want to see the mob. They want to feed their families. You know, that kind of thing. That's what tribes is all about. Whether it's uh, African tribes or uh, 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 Italian or Irish or uh, tri tribes is like the first order of governance. Governance. Tribe was the first order of governance. You know, where people would come together our survival and, and, and share their uh, skills and whatnot for the betterment of the of their community, you know. And uh, that's what that's what we was about. You know, we just shared a, a background of being uh, 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 the common thing that, that we shared was we was excellent musicians and we had uh, names as 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 uh, glorified side men, you know, because we could we could we could make somebody sound good. We could make a band sound good. It, no matter where bad we went went in, we'd, we'd be playing for. If they were dealing with us, the band was gonna sound good, you know, because we 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 would bring to to that particular band uh, uh, skills, you know. Now I'm talking about the, at the time at the time we was 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 uh we at, at the time we were, was uh farming tribe all the people that was doing this all my comrades were skilled uh they could write they could play the ass off you know they could improvise they could and, and uh and there was teachers you know there was actually teaching teaching jazz studies it was teaching uh, uh this art form you know, so that's the kind of caliber. In fact, they were so prolific when they died, they had streets out there named after them in Detroit, like Marcus Belgrade Street Boulevard downtown, Harold McKinney's Way. That's a street downtown. You know, this cast was prolific. I mean, <laughs> you know. What I mean? Wow, man, that's something. That's legacy right there too. That's legacy. I mean, I'm so so. What I'm saying is, I'm not just blowing smoke. These guys is great. <laughs> Guys, it's great. <laughs> We end this episode with some parting words from Egon, talking about his role in bringing this music back to vinyl and what he hopes you, the listener to this podcast and the buyer of this box set, will ultimately take away from this box. We'll see you in episode one when we start talking about the albums in this edition of VMP Anthology. Like, I look at myself as, like, the the last conduit that is going to truly say that, you know, he spent time with these people. He understood as best as he could empirically, like, who these people were as creators and as humans. And in a lot of ways, like, what I want to be for Tribe Records is, like, another part of the history. Like, I want to be able to continue the oral history of Tribe Records, because I think that's very important and it's in keeping with the name. But at the same time, I want to be a conduit for discovery for people who, like myself, when I was in my teens and 20s, were just intrigued by this idea that like people could come together without anybody's express permission and just create something beautiful and meaningful and counterculture, but at the same time, like culturally important, you know, for everybody, every American, every person that's interested in music. You know, people across the globe, I mean, all of our friends in Japan who have obsessed over Tribe for years. 
I just want to be a part of that discussion. And I want to be the person that, you know, for as long as I can, keeps this music in print and sounding as good as possible, basically. So there you have it. This ends this episode of VMP Anthology, The Story of Tribe Records. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast was co-hosted by Marcus J. Moore and me, Andrew Winnestorfer, who also executive produced. It was produced by Jonah Graber. A special thanks to Wendell Harrison and Phil Ranelin for their legacy of music and for listeners like you who bought this box set and listened to this podcast. Make sure you pick up Marcus Moore's new book, The Butterfly Effect, at bookstores now. And as always, remember, listen to more Marcus Belgrave. Thank you.